Good morning. Our Old Testament reading is from uh, Psalm 95. You can follow along in your Bibles or in the, in the worship guide. Let us hear the word. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God's word given for our good together. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Stephen. Would you remain standing just a bit longer as we commend this time to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, um, these ancient, mysterious words. Um, we confess, Lord, that our hearts are stubborn and we're not always inclined to listen, but we do pray that you'd be merciful by your spirit, soften our hearts, and um, may these mysterious and ancient words be beautiful, and may we see Jesus, and may we love him, for he has loved us first. And so we, we're here, Lord, we're your people. Come meet with us through your word, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Ronnie. I am the senior pastor here at Denver Prez, and you have met us in the middle of a sermon series. This summer, we're just working through this, a few of the Psalms, and this morning, we're in Psalm 95, as we just heard, but um, I actually want to begin in John chapter 4. You know the story. Jesus walks up to a well. And he finds there a Samaritan woman, and he's thirsty. It was hot. And so he asks her for a drink. It's a simple question. Give me a drink. <laughs> but what ensues is not what you expect. It's this deep theological discourse. And, and this woman has this litany of questions for him. She's just firing them off. And, and there Jesus is speaking to her, speaking authoritatively. Like on God's behalf, he's like the spokesman par excellence of God speaking to this woman. And he says this, he says, a time is coming and it has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Now, by saying that, like, is Jesus starting something new? Because Jesus is insisting that God must be worshipped in spirit and truth. 
not spirit or truth, not like a spectrum, not sort of like preferences, but like both of them. And anything less than both of them is not worship at all. And so the answer is no, he's not actually saying anything new. He's simply describing what God has always intended and what we actually will see in Psalm 95. So today we're studying what theologians call the magnus opus of worship. In Latin, it's called the venite because the very first word of the psalm is O come. And um, I imagine there's kind of like three kinds of people here today. Some of you uh, believe, you believe upon the Lord Jesus and you live into his presence regularly and worship is a part of your daily experience. Maybe there's another group who also believe, but perhaps remaining in his presence and worship is not something that you experience regularly. Maybe there's a, a distance that sometimes you feel with the Lord. And dare I say there's a third group. Probably you're here, maybe you're just exploring, and you, you have not believed upon the Lord Jesus. You're just here, not sure maybe why you're here, but you're we're, from our part, we're glad you're here. But you're asking the question, what relevance could a discussion on worship have for you? The premise of Psalm 95 is that the God of the universe who is there is summoning you into his presence. And his presence can make you whole. Doesn't that sound good? You were designed for it. And so wherever you are today, whether you know it or not, you must be deeply interested in this question of worship, of being in God's presence. So let's study this psalm and find out why. We're going to take our cue from Jesus and his words as we study Psalm 95, because what I'm suggesting is that true worship or life giving worship, or a kind of worship that actually feeds you and nourishes you, is in spirit and truth. Both of those things. So for you note takers, I have David Reed. Uh, I have two points, and, uh, but there are sub points. So you got to listen carefully. So let's, um, Jesus teaches us to worship in spirit and truth. Let's begin by seeing how this psalm teaches us to worship in spirit. So traditionally, uh, spirit-filled worship is often associated with like ecstatic or miraculous experiences. Um, that's actually kind of a new phenomenon. The Bible actually never makes that association. You don't see that present in the Bible or being evidence of spirit-filled worship. Oftentimes, it'll be evidence of um, courage. Um, in some ways, this is one of the more confused matters in the sort of modern uh, Christian life. I can remember one time I was leaving church, and I used to go to like a kind of a big kind of mega church, high performative, high experiential, you know, um, sort of encounter as, as ha ha the, the model that this church particularly used. But he left, and he says, um, I, I didn't like the music. I just couldn't get into worship today. That's what he says. I couldn't get into it. Um, what is that? What's happening there? They couldn't get into it. You know, worship is a verb. It's not a genre. And sadly, he, in that moment, based on his preferences, were confusing goosebumps with actually worshiping God. And why? 
Because worship is not about you. It's not about us. See, worship is our way of assigning to God that he is supremely valuable more than anything else. And by doing so, it's engaging us and transforming every part of who we are. Our mind, our will, and of course, our emotions too. So it's not less than emotions, but it's more than emotions. And so in Psalm 95, we, what we see is worshiping in spirit is engaging both emotions and choices. Let's look how, how the actual structure of the psalm shows us that it's both. Um, you'll see two points, at two points in the, in the psalm, if you'll oh, keep your Bibles open or your worship guide, the word, O come, you'll see it in verse 1, and then you'll see it again in verse 6. You see that? Let's look at the first, O come, because it shows us, in this case, how it engages our emotions. Verse 1 says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us, again, make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Y'all see that repetition? Let us make a joyful noise. What is a joyful noise? Like, what are those? Those are sounds of emotions, right? I mean, God clearly does care, Presbyterians, about emotions. Uh, God doesn't simply want you to think right thoughts about him. He wants you to have right feelings towards him. And, and there's kind of two reasons that we see that are so important. One, the first is that expressing emotions of God of thanksgiving actually completes the joy. Um, I can remember... Uh, when we were, many of you will know, we used to live in Puerto Rico. And one summer, Amanda took all of the kids on a family trip to Texas. That's where Amanda and I are both native Texans. And I had to stay back. So I was missing my kids. I was home alone, uh, missing my home state. So I went out to the grocery store and I, I bought an overpriced steak. And, um, and I prepared it, you know, the way that I was discipled. Uh, don't put anything on a nice steak except Lowry seasoning salt. No, don't put ketchup or A1, just a little bit of salt. You know, I grilled it lightly, just six minutes each side. And uh, I, uh, you wanted a little bit bloody, and I, uh, you know, sat it, I sat it in front of me, opened up a nice bottle of red, and I, I took my fork and knife and I cut into it, and I inspected it. I wanted to make sure it looked the way it ought to be. And I placed that first bite into my mouth. Now, listen, I'm alone in my house. And I put that bite into my mouth. And what did I do? Mmm. Mmm. Yeah. I mean, I put my arms up in the air like I'm, like, taking a victory lap or something. Like, what am I even doing? Like, there's no one even there. I am, like, making the, these sounds and vocalizing my delight in this delicious piece of food. And Why? Why do I do that? Because wouldn't it be weird if you're eating this like nice piece of food to like just be silent? That's weird, right? Like just move on to the next bite. Like you have to like vocalize and complete the joy. You can't just move on. And in fact, to not say anything would be weird. That's what would be weird. You have to complete the joy. And I didn't care that there was no one else there listening. See, see how an emotional expression actually completes the joy. That's what's happening when we give joyful expression in our worship, when it's actually vocalized. 
It completes the joy. But there's a second reason. Singing out loud actually works on the singer, right? It, to sing out loud actually makes the singer vulnerable. Do you know why, I mean, just to be stereotypical here, why men often don't sing in church? Because it's vulnerable. Like, it's uneasy. Like, to really give yourself to singing is an uneasy feeling. And God knows that. And that's why he wants you to do it. Singing, it makes you tender. It makes you vulnerable. It makes you ready to listen. And so, worshiping in the spirit is emotional. And it ought to be. But it's actually more than that. Let's look at that second O come now in verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So this time, there's no joyful noise. Now this time, it's reverent. And it's really about our choices. So true worship, spirit-filled worship, it engages our emotions and our choices, right? And and spirit-filled worship is just that, right? It's worship filled with the Holy Spirit. And theologically, what we know is it's the Holy Spirit that works in us and animates our choices and our decisions. And so when the psalmist uh, calls us to bow down, to kneel, he's calling us to make a choice, to respond with reverence. See, remember, in worship, we're ascribing to God the value of his worth, and it takes our breath away, and it shapes us. It works on us. Worship shapes how we live, not just how we feel. In Tim Keller, in one of his books, he, there's no better illustration. Uh, he talks about this, um, this poor woman who's limping along in life, She's poor, uh, struggles to pay her bills. And so, you know, she's tight, needs some food. So she goes dumpster diving, right? And um, she realizes she has this old piece, this old ring, a piece of jewelry that's kind of been passed down from generation to generation. Uh, It's just kind of hidden in all of her stuff. But she takes it out. She's cleaning it. And she decides, you know, I'm going to go to the jeweler, jeweler and get this piece, this ring appraised. She's hoping maybe she can get $100, maybe get some fast food to eat that night, something. And the jeweler takes it, you know, he takes out that special tool with like the lens and he begins to inspect it. And the more he's examining this piece of jewelry, something's happening. His jaw drops. What he, what he finds is that it is a, a, a stone, a gem that's only really talked about in fairy tales. I mean, it's priceless. It is so rare. It's literally priceless. And she's been living by dumpster diving. And now she realized that she had a life-changing stone in her possession the whole time. And this is what it's like with God. Like, we are completely unaware of what we have in Christ. We're unaware of his value. We're limping along in life. We're dumpster diving because we don't know what we have. See, when that woman discovered the value of what she had, she sang, right? She she jumped for joy. She made joyful noises. But she also started making different choices. She stopped dumpster diving, didn't she? Right? 
Like when she realized what she had, it worked even on her choices and how she lives because that's how it works. Spirit-filled worship does that. Worship, that is when we ascribe to God the value of his worth, what do we do? We sing for joy. We allow it to make us vulnerable, right? We complete the joy by vocalizing it, but it also works on us. It changes us. It shapes our decisions. We bend the knee. We're empowered by the Spirit to bend our knee and to even obey him in new ways. This reminds me of a, 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 a one-verse parable in Matthew 13 that Jesus says. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. You see both emotions and choices, right? There's this explosion of joy, but then he made choice to like do anything to purchase that field, to do whatever he had to do to have it. That is spirit-filled worship. All right, how are we doing? So, so far we looked at the call in verse 1 and then verse 6, the O come. We saw how spirit-filled worship shapes our emotions and our choices. But then Jesus says that we must worship in spirit and in truth. All right, so let's keep looking at the structure of Psalm 95. So after each of those refrains of the O come, there is this uh, conjunctive or coordinating adverb for you grammar nerds like one of my daughters. Um, it's that word for, F-O-R. You see that in verse, verses 3 and in verse 7. And that word for just means because, right? It's giving us a reason. It's giving us an explanation. It's an intellectual appeal. So all of our experiences in God, of God must be rooted in truth. Um, and this is kind of like a flex, because I want to tell you what this is not. But like in 1985, my dad was doing security in the Astrodome, and I got invited to Michael Jackson's concert, the Thriller Tour. I'm not making this up. And so I got in, and um, y'all, it was nuts. It was wild. I mean, you know, I don't know, 100,000 people there. And they were like, I mean, there was like, it was like manic. People are going crazy. I mean, they're like passing out. There's like kind of hysteria. Every dude, he's doing like the moonwalk, and people are like passing out. They got the fire hoses and started like watering down the audience and so forth. People were really worked up. That crowd was worshiping. I can promise you they were worshiping, but they weren't worshiping in truth. So what, what is it? What are these reasons then we ought to worship? Now let's look at the first explanation, the first four, F-O-R, in verse 3. It says, um, we see in verses 3 and then all the way through verse 5, God's self-disclosure. That is God's revealing himself to, for who he is. It says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So there's two things I want you to notice in this section. And these are reasons for coming, right? There's this invitation for coming to the Lord, but why? The first is God is the one 
and only creator. He's above all gods. See that language in those three verses of him being the creator? In his hands, depths, mountains. You see that? The seas are his, for he made it, formed by his hands. So like in the ancient Near Eastern culture, gods were understood as residing in or analogous to these things like the sea and mountain or the moon and the sun. So there would be like a sun god, right? So everyone is worshiping those kinds of things. But here God is saying, he's saying like, don't you see? They don't exist. What you're worshiping is just a plaything for God, right? It's just a plaything. He's the creator. So worship then the creator, not his plaything. And then the second reason that we see here is that the basis of worship of God is God telling us who he is, not, uh, not us telling God who he is. <laughs> this is not, I'm not trying to make an overly subtle point here. And this is our cultural moment. We have this intense impulse to make God in our image instead of allowing God to make us in his image. God begins, as we describe him in our culture, to look a lot like our cultural intuitions as moderns. When people ask what God is like, we're almost creating him in our image. We're describing him according to our own sensibilities. And that version of God, the one that we just made, that kind of God will never contradict you. He just agrees with you. He rubber stamps whatever you want. That's God, what do you want? Yeah, that's what God would really want for you too, right? He sort of baptizes our ideas. But here's the thing. is that version, that God, that's not a real God. That God or that idol of our imagination, that's not the one that created the heavens and the earth. That's just a thing that we projected And the worst part of this, and hear my heart on this, the worst part is because he's not real, that idol can't help you when you call upon him. That idol can't transform you when you really want to grow and change because that's not a real God. That God is deaf and mute and dumb because he's not real. And so our worship must be in truth, in truth. And we need to know God for who he discloses himself to be. All right, so truth-filled worship appeals to our intellect by giving us reasons, but it also appeals to our intellect by reminding us past lessons. So you'll notice in verse 7, we have the second four, F-O-R. So here we find a positive past lesson and a negative one. So verse 7 begins, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, And the sheep of his hand. And this is just a brief appeal to remind Israel that God is our shepherd, right? And as our shepherd, he he has led them, he has taken care of them, he has led them to green pastures, right? It's it's sort of like this echo to um, Psalm 23. We remember that's who God is. But then it takes an ominous turn quickly in the second part of verse 7. Look, look there, keep going. And this is really to the end of the psalm through verse 11. The psalmist reminds Israel of two pretty bad events, one in Meribah and one in Massa, 
And these two stories are, are stories that you could read. They're recorded in uh, Exodus and then in Leviticus. And let me just quickly summarize them for you because these two stories almost have the same uh, template, the same uh, behavior. So you'll remember, Old Testament lesson, 400 years, Israel is literally under the thumb of Pharaoh. And men worked to death, back-breaking work, no days off, 400 years without a vacation, right? No days off. Many men would die in their labors. Their wives and their daughters could be summoned by their Egyptian masters to be used for their own purposes. Uh, Their firstborn children were murdered. This is their history. This is where they come from. So God rescues them using Moses, right? Miraculously, they pass through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. It's incredible. And there they are. They're traveling in the desert, and they're on their way to the promised land. You know, the land flowing with milk and honey. And when things get just a little bit hard on that travel, what do they do? What do they do? They revolt against God. I want to go back. I would rather be under the rule of Pharaoh than this God. Because at least there I got a little bit more meat and potatoes. And what are they doing in that moment? What's like, what's underneath that? They're comparing what the gods of Egypt paid out versus what the God of, what they perceive the God of Israel is going to pay out. And this is what we learn that they never loved God for who he is. They loved him for what they believed he would pay out, (laughs) what he would give them. And so they sold themselves to the highest bidder. That's what's going on there. And God says, you will get, and it's it's so rebellious, it's so dark. God says, then I shall give you exactly what you're asking for. You're going to ask these gods for something, and you're going to get what you're asking for. And what do they give? What do these gods give? Death. No rest. Verse 11. They shall not enter my rest. And of course, we know that that generation was not allowed to enter into the promised land. And here's the logic. This is why the psalmist is putting these lyrics into our mouth. So we must give ourselves to truth-filled worship. We must know God for who he truly is, and we must love him for himself, not what we perceive he can give us. Why? Because because your heart will worship other things, and you will give yourself to the highest bidder. You hear what I'm saying to you? You will give yourself to who you perceive is the highest bidder. Listen, the world is not divided between those who worship and those who do not. Listen, everyone worships, even the atheist. Everyone worships. The question is, what does your worship produce? Does your worship produce life and rest Or does it produce death and anxiety? Does it take it? 
Um, you guys, uh, ever since I started writing our weekly updates, for a few of you guys, y'all know it's like literally the, my favorite thing that I do for this church is write these dumb weekly updates. So if you don't get it, you need to totally sign up. Um, but uh, one of my early editions, I quoted this guy named David Foster Wallace. He's this brilliant writer. He uh, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. He's not a Christian, uh, but incredibly thoughtful. He actually took his own life. He struggled with depression, took his own life in 2008. But I want you to listen to these words that this non-Christian writer says to students at Kenyon College during his graduation address. I'm going to read a portion of it. This is David Foster Wallace's words. He says, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, whether it be Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or a wicked mother goddess or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, and you'll feel like you never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. And you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. (laughs) Those are sobering thoughts. From a non-Christian thinker, here's the point. To be human is to worship. And even a non-Christian can see the wisdom of Psalm 95. Truth-filled worship means that you recognize God for who he says that he is and that you learn from past lessons of what gives life and what takes life. Truth-filled worship means that you ascribe to God the value of his worth and you allow that experience of him to level you, to drown out everything else that you are prone to worship. Don't worship the things of God. Worship him, however he declares himself to be. And then allow that to relativize the value and worth of everything else in this life. True worship must drown out everything, everything that is vying for your loyalty and love and obedience. Otherwise, there will be no rest, no soul rest, which I desperately want for you. Those are the stakes. Those are the stakes of getting this right. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Let me conclude quickly. So we began our study Psalm 95 by, we were recalling Jesus' words, right, to the Samaritan woman when he said, true worshipers must worship God in truth and in spirit. So we looked at spirit-filled worship, and then we looked at truth-filled worship. Now, if you were to continue to follow that story in John 4, 
after that woman had that encounter with Jesus, she realized what she found, right? Didn't she? Y'all remember how this goes? Do you remember what happens next? This woman, this precious woman with this sort of shady past whose spirit is like riddled with shame and loneliness and anxiety, like something happens in her, right? When she realizes what she had found in Jesus, something happens over her. What is it? This deep rest pours over her and she begins to worship. And so she runs off and she runs off with joy. I mean, no more shame, right? Like with joy, she goes into, back into this community and says, I have found something. I have found something more valuable than anything else. And you have to meet this man. Like he is the promised one. He is the Messiah. This is Jesus. This, this, this community that she otherwise felt shame around, now she moves into him and says, I have found something and everyone must know him. Isn't that something? That reminds me of that one verse parable that Jesus tells that I cited earlier. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Now listen to me, you guys. Look at me, please. If you've zoned off, to, 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 to do that, to know that you ought to do that is really good. And I want that for you, but it is not enough to actually compel you to worship. Just telling you that is not enough. Only the gospel can do that. And see, we see Jesus in this one verse parable. He's not only talking about you. He's also talking about himself. See, Jesus is also that man in the field who found you and who hid you in his heart. And then with great joy, gave everything. He like, he literally gave everything away. He gave away his very last breath and he purchased you with his own blood because he had to have you. And if you could just believe that, even just an ounce of it, if you could bury that deep in your heart, I promise you what would come from that is worship in spirit and in truth. That would be the single most precious thing in your life. And that is enough to drown out everything else. It levels everything else in your life. And it can and will animate through the Spirit a new affection for the Savior and to do His will. Do you believe that? Let those words pour over you. Let God, put those words in your mouth and in your heart. Amen.